0: Welcome, friends and relatives. (laughs) We're so happy to have you here with us today and tuning back into this next episode of All My Relations. And today we are in the presence of greatness. Matika and I are so excited to have these warrior women, scholars, sisters here with us, our mentors, our idols, (laughs) to talk about the issue of Indian mascots. So, Dr.
1: Keene, I thought maybe we could just take a moment to talk about the history of the R word and why this term is so offensive to so many of our people.
0: Well, I think there is dissent within the scholarly community about like when the R word was first used to refer to Native folks. It definitely is a word that throughout history was used in a derogatory and negative way towards Native people's there's some folks who say that it initially was used to refer to the actual scalps of native peoples. There are plenty of ads and newspaper articles that from the eighteen hundreds that refer to Native peoples by the R word, never in a positive way. It's one of those words that has evolved throughout history, regardless of its initial use or origin, to definitely mean a racist phrase towards native peoples it's not a positive term by any means to the point that most of my friends who are native won't even say the word um and i know a lot of us feel that way that it really is a racial slur Mm
1: -hmm.
0: absolutely i
1: i i can't say in my own life that that anybody has ever used that term towards me in a loving way Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I can't (laughs) even,
0: I'm trying to picture what that sentence would sound like. And I, I can't even picture that. Mm -mm. And you know, what else is that? It's not a a term that
1: I think is that we've like taken back and Mm -hmm. have like popularized into contemporary culture and, and changed its meaning to mean something other than, you know, a word that has a very deep, ugly racial slur attached to it and it's not used in any other way and you know if somebody was to walk up to me and call me the r word those would be fighting words you know yeah
0: i often think of like supporters of the word who seem to think that it's not um not a problem in articles when they're quoted they never refer to native peoples as R word in the article. So if they're interviewing a fan who is like, "Yeah, I'm such a big R skins fan, and everything is great," then those Native Americans came and they say that they're against the name, but they never say those R words came and they say they're against the name. So if it's not offensive, why wouldn't you just use it to refer to us all the time? Mm, good point. It's also a dictionary defined racial slur. Like it says in the Webster Merriam Webster dictionary offensive often slur and i feel like white folks care very deeply about dictionary definitions for some reason so there you go it's in the dictionary the best thing about this episode to me
1: is that we have the opportunity to talk with Dr. Freiberg and Amanda, who are two folks that have really done a lot of research around the ways that mascots and imagery affect our lives with Dr. Freiberg, but also with Amanda in the ways that she's dedicated, you know, a dozen years of her life to trying to get rid of the R word from a public team and is still in that fight. So I, um, I find that people often will say to me, get over it, or they'll say to me that it doesn't actually affect people's lives, move on. The point is is that people often tell us that it doesn't affect our lives and that it's not in any way harmful to our people and that they're honoring and attempting to uh, respect us in some sort of way by having um, a characterized, savage-looking creature as their mascot. And and I just I just can't believe that that's still an argument and that there's false data to support it.
0: One of the important things to know is that with having Dr. Freiberg here and Amanda, we have two different perspectives of how we can fight against these native mascots. Dr. Freiberg is um, doing her research in the psychological and social psychology realm and education world and amanda was involved in the court case against the washington football team and that court case was one that started out um, by suzanne shown harjo she decided with a group of folks that they would go after the actual trademark of the team because we know that money talks. And so if you can hit the team by canceling their trademark, that means they can't make any money off of that logo or that name ever again Mm -hmm. um, because anyone could just make R-Words shirts and sell Mm -hmm. them or whatever. And making money off marketing is a huge part of the NFL. They found this law that said that you couldn't hold a trademark on a racist term or phrase they decided to use that to go after the washington football team and they actually won they went all the way through the court system and ruled in favor and said that the name was disparaging and therefore it couldn't have a trademark on it but then they lost on a technicality and suzanne harjo they said that she waited too long to file her lawsuit that she was too old at the time of from injury basically it was too long So they relaunched the lawsuit again with young people, people ages 18 to 24, because they were like, okay, if that's the only thing that you said we lost on, then we're gonna do it again with younger people. That court case worked its way all the way through, and they won again. And then it started working its way through the appeals court, because of course, the NFL is not gonna take that decision lightly. During that time, a band in California called the Slants, It's an Asian-American band. They named themselves The Slants. They went to court to say that they should be able to hold a trademark on their band name because they wanted to reclaim that slur for their band. And the court ruled in favor of them. Hmm. And so then it immediately canceled the case that was still pending on the Washington R-Words because the thing that they were using to argue was deemed unconstitutional. Hmm. So it meant that the case was lost.
1: Can we just acknowledge that this is not our responsibility to have to regroup and go back to court again over a racial slur? This is the responsibility of every single person supporting the n f l and supporting their the the fan the fans actually wearing this inappropriate clothing and participating in a very racist behavior. They have a
0: responsibility as well. What do we say to the fans, Adrian? The research shows that over 60% of Americans have never met a Native American. If you talk to fans one-on-one, they're not thinking of us as real people. Education is a big part of it, but I also think that there are signs of positive change. I think the Cleveland Indians is a good example that they have finally, after like 70 years or something, decided to stop using Chief Wahoo on their uniforms, which is a blatantly racist image. And there has been little fan outcry for that. Like, people are kind of, it, at least to me, it doesn't seem like people are that angry about it. So, I think it's going to take a change from the top. And unfortunately, the top right now for the Washington football team is Dan Snyder, who has said on the record, you can use all caps that we will never change the name. Mm,
1: mm, mm. We see you, Dan. Get it together. Sorry. (laughs) All my relations.
0: Joining us here today, uh, we have Dr. Stephanie Freiberg and Amanda Blackhorse. So, welcome to both of you. Thank you. Hello, thank you for having me.
1: So let's just start with just introducing both of our guests today. And I'm going to introduce Dr. Stephanie Freiberg, who is a member of the Tulalip Tribes and an expert on the psychological and educational effects of social representations of race, class and culture. She got a Ph.D. in psychology at Stanford University, where she is a member of the Multicultural Hall of Fame. Just last month, she was appointed as the Gerberding University Professor at the University of Washington, recognizing her exceptional research, contributions, and accomplishments in the field of American Indian Studies and Psychology. Dr. Freibert 's research on stereotypes, race, class, and psychological development led her to testify in front of the U.S. Senate Committee on Indian Affairs on the impact of racist stereotypes on indigenous people. My favorite title of a recent paper would be, Hands Down, We're Honoring You, Dude, Myths, Mascots, and American Indians. <laughs> she is also one of the hardest workers I've ever known and one of my most influential thought leaders, and we're super excited to have you here.
0: Amanda Blackhorse is from Kayenta, Arizona, on the Navajo Res, and is a Diné social worker, activist, and mother. She was the lead plaintiff in the Blackhorse versus Pro Football Incorporated, a 2012 case which sought to revoke the trademark protection of the term Washington R-Words. She received her bachelor's degree in social work at the University of Kansas and her master's degree at Washington University in St. Louis. While her training and work history includes focus on substance abuse treatment, health care, and adult mental health in Native communities, she's fiercely fought against the use of Native American imagery and stereotypes as sports team mascots. After filing her case against pro football, Amanda founded Arizona to rally against Native American mascots and later launched the website nomorenativemascots.org. Both entities are dedicated to spreading education, organizing protests, and working towards the elimination of sports mascots based on Native imagery. She's a badass warrior woman and just this week was standing on top of a car in Arizona protesting Native American Halloween costumes. (laughs) Welcome, Amanda.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Well, we're really excited to have you here in our season one of this podcast. It means so much to us to have you here. So we decided to title the project All My Relations. And as you know, that's a a really common theme throughout Indian country, Uh, not such a common theme throughout non-Indian country (laughs) and so you know we are really interested in exploring our relationship based identities and our relationship to land our relationship to water and our relationship to one another and so a part of uh, what we're doing in this show is asking each one of our participants if they could elaborate on on that topic and we realize that all over Indian country we have these these ways of recognizing all of our relatives, and so if you could sort of talk about that personally, what that means to you, and also um, if just if you would just take a moment to introduce yourselves as you would to a large group of people uh, in the way that you feel most comfortable, that we'd appreciate that.
2: <clears throat> well, I'm Stephanie Freiberg, and I, on my father's side, am Tulela, but on my grandmother's side, I'm actually not Tlilip. I'm Snohomish, um, Stehope's. And on my grandmother's side, I'm Quinault in Yakima, and I grew up in Tulalip and am very, I think I've spent my whole life being influenced by what elders have said about the need to get an education and come back and help our children. Um, the term All My Relations, for me, it has two, two it brings, I think it brings two commitments to mind for me. One is that I have a commitment to every indigenous community, not just my own. And we are all related, we're all connected in some way, whether it's, you know, over hundreds of years of intermarriage, um, or really just that we stand in a time, a place where our futures depend on each other. And so that relationship Um, And holding up that responsibility to one another is really important. The other way in which I think about all my relations is going forward and going back. So when I think back in my past, my ancestors, I feel a responsibility to the fight that they took on to make us who we are today. And then I look at my children and I think about future generations and think about the commitment and the responsibility I have to make society today a better place so that our future generations have a better life than perhaps we
0: have now. Mm-hmm. So it's beautiful. Thank you. Mm. <laughs> yeah. All that. That's yes. what pops into my head. <laughs> just oh, those that things. Just, just that. that little thing that pops into her head. <laughs> oh. Amanda, what about you? So,
3: yeah, Amanda we talk about something called Um and we, you know, everything that we do is supposed to be around keh. and they say, and that means, you know, we have to, everything that we do is intertwined with um, how we relate to other people um, and our relatives around us. And so I always try to live by the mantra of love for our people. Um, And sometimes that can be really hard. Um, You know, we're so complex and there's so many different layers to our community. Um, And, you know, I'm sure just, you know, given where I come from and where everyone here comes from, you know, we have our challenges in our communities. Um, Within our families, within our relationships, and so sometimes it's it's hard to um, to really just love our people um, and stand by that, and also have love for ourselves as as well, and learn how you know what that really means, so that we can you know be better role models for our kids and stuff. So that's kind of what I think about when I think about all my relations, and it's so it's so neat to see everyone here from very different backgrounds, very different tribes, and um, we all kind of share that same belief.
0: hmm
3: Awesome.
0: Thank you. So I think we just want to kind of dive into it, and I'm curious to hear from both of you sort of what brought you to this work. This is something that has been a lifelong kind of passion for both of you, a project that you've been working on for a long time. So what first brought you to this work around representations and around mascots, specifically?
3: Well, for me, I kind of just fell into it. You know, it's not something that I thought I would ever do. It just happened. That happens to us. It's you know, our what we end up working on throughout our lives are based on the struggles that we go through. And for me, it was just experiencing it and seeing the the detrimental effects of native mascots. For a lot of people. They don't truly understand the issue until they've actually experienced it, or seen, or been affected by stereotypes in some sort of negative way. And for me, you know, I think it was a combination of me growing up on the on the Navajo Res, really shelter, and then leaving, and then going, you know, to a completely different state and experiencing what I experienced um, with seeing what happens at these games the type of culture that is there you know the the football culture and the the toxic masculinity and the way that people see us and mock our culture and it's socially socially acceptable and that's okay to do in society i think that was the the biggest shocker for me and that's what led me to to pursue this
2: Mm Yeah. I mean, I think my experience is much the same. I I have sort of the experiences as a young person, and then the sort of academic awakening, mm-hmm. I think I would say. So as a young person, I went to Marysville Pilchuck High School, and we were the Marysville Pilchuck Tomahawks. And there was always this moment at games where, you know, they would do the tomahawk chant. Um, and I remember in those moments feeling like, oh, God, to fit in, I'm supposed to do this. And then often at pep rallies, the ASB president, who was always white, would come out with this chief headdress on. And again, like I remember feeling just very uncomfortable with it. Um, But, you know, it was back in a time when people didn't really talk about race and discrimination in the same way. And you know i would watch many of my peers from the reservation disengage and i just remember sitting in that space not not sure i mean not understanding and and feeling uncertain but then feeling like oh this is what we're supposed to do and is this who we are like why is this how we're representing our people but then for me, like as an academic, I actually came about this in kind of a sideways piece. So I was very interested, again, connecting back to the responsibility to the elders telling me to get an education and come back and help our children is I was really interested in how do these public representations of natives influence native children. Mm. And so a lot of my early work in grad school where we exposed native students to public representations and looked at what effect they had, well, we determined the representations based on what was most popular in society, like what were the most common images. And so one of them happened to be Chief Wahoo because the Cleveland Indians were actually a good baseball team then. I don't think <laughs> they've been since. And- I could be wrong, um, but they were, real. I mean, World Series. And there was even a time period then when it was actually the Atlanta Braves and yeah. the mm-hmm. Cleveland Indians. And so we, we included Chief Wahoo in the very first study we did. It had Chief Wahoo and Pocahontas. And each of them was a different condition. Mm -hmm. Um, And then these negative stereotypes were really common. And so what really drew me to the mascot issue, which I had been in, I mean, I'd certainly been around through the college environment, different cases that had come up. um, But the results of that study surprised Mm me. So the very first study we did showed that exposing native high school students to Chief Wahoo lowered self esteem. Mm. And as we continued to do more work, the strength of that particular image continued to shine through. Mm. And so that for me, I mean I've taken the role of really being the scientist. I haven't gotten so involved in activism because I think it's really important to separate those mm-hmm. roles and and so, you know, we've really worked hard in my lab to, you know, have different people do statistics, I mean, really working to maintain the integrity of the work we're doing on bias. But I think for me, it really came about by seeing how much it harmed Native children.
1: Mm. Yeah, <laughs> just like processing. Yeah, Yeah. I've, um, I, I remember when I first became um, familiar with that study. And I was teaching in Tulalip at the time. And um, Shelley had asked me to put together a curriculum of uh, a year's worth of photographic representations of native people of contemporary representations, mm-hmm. so we could teach our kids you know in a way that was respectful and, and something they'd feel excited about mm-hmm. and, and I couldn't find enough material to um, to expose them to positive indigenous folks from all over the country that wasn't yeah. photographed by non-indigenous yeah. people and and when I learned about your work I I was just at the time feeling so overwhelmed by the sadness in the community and by going to so many funerals in our community and um, and thinking like if if negative representations are affecting the self esteem of our kids and I'm constantly having to lay my kids to rest because of of early death for whatever reason suicide or Mm -hmm. you know whatever it is that that leads to those things in our community I um I I realized I had to be a part of creating an image that was different you know but it was really it was like somebody kind of just like a scientist saying out loud like this is true like we're not Mm -hmm. making this up and this is real this is the data it was really meaningful for me yeah and so I really appreciate you talking about that and doing that work. Right. And, and I think it made waves throughout Indian country. Um, you know, that, I mean, that's how it affected me. And I can't even imagine how it affected so many others. Well, but I, I mean, I honestly see you and I as
2: having very similar projects, right? Because part of what we're trying to do is to say, look, there's, I mean, I love this James Baldwin quote that is about, you have to make the world see us as who we are, not the idea of us they envision. And that's not an exact quote of how he says it, but the content is there. That, you know, so much of the work we need to do now is making people see us as who we are as contemporary Native people and not continue to allow them to see us through their ideal of us. So they like the romanticized image. They like the Pocahontas, the Chief Wahoo. I mean, I've just been so surprised over the years. You know, you hear the common arguments that people make. For example, it's just a mascot. Don't Native people have more important things to deal with? And what you just said is exactly why the mascot's important, that you're playing with our identity. When you look at health research, psychological well-being, education, it all comes down to how we're represented. All of those literature bases tie back to identity. And so how our identity is being used by mainstream society matters. And not because we don't have strong identities, but because we have to negotiate that public identity out there. And when we're not shown in these really highly capable ways as being contributing members of society, there are consequences for that. And that's the omission. You know, that's the what it, it allows non-natives to feel good about American history. It allows them to feel good about um, their, their lot in life where they are situated and not have to realize that they got there as a result of what they've done to other groups. Mm-hmm. And so it's, I mean, I really see us as engaged in a very similar project, right? Mm-hmm. Is how do we, how do we
1: maintain and understand and change that representational space?
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And I learned about your research from Adrian's blog. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and that's funny because Adrian was writing about that It's from Stanford, and I was reading about it on my res, and we're from the same res. So that's it. That's
0: <laughs> um, All my relations. <laughs> Here we go. Put. Um, Amanda, you said that you just sort of fell into this world and we're kind of thrust into it and you've been at the forefront of the fight for now, like going, I mean, it's almost a decade at this point, uh, uh but the ways that you've seen the conversations change either for the better, or I know you've faced personally a lot of blowback from your activism and involvement in this issue. So maybe talking about, uh, if there's ways you've seen the conversation change in the time you've been involved and also the challenges that come with doing this work.
3: So for me, it's been about 13 years now since I've been involved and about 12 years since the case started.
0: Unfortunately, our Skype connection wasn't that great. So much of Amanda's recording is inaudible. So we're going to summarize some of what she says and offer the best of the audio that came through. Amanda, along with other defendants, Marcus Briggs, Cloud, Philip Gover,
1: Jillian Papon, and Courtney Zotgei, have been actively fighting against the Washington R-words for over a decade now. Her court case was filed in 2006. It was tricky because it was pending Suzanne Harjo's case, which she eventually lost because of a technicality. The Supreme Court said that she should have filed the case when she was the majority age. Basically, they said she was too old, which led to Suzanne helping Amanda and other young people filing suit.
3: For those folks who don't know, the case originally started with the trademark law. It was under an administrative court. And it, the purpose was to cancel the federal registrations of the Washington team name, the R word and a logos. to, you know, to get rid of their name so that the team no longer has rights to that and they can no longer Profit off of the the name and the logo.
0: When Amanda's case was filed, she was only 23. She had just graduated and was off to the University of Kansas, and around this time, she started her family. She says the entire court case shaped her 20s.
3: I kind of grew up with the case. I feel like my young adult years, all of those years were, you know, I grew up with it, and so did my kids.
0: In 2009, Suzanne's case was officially thrown out, and that's when their case picked up steam. And then, finally... At that
3: point, 2014 was when we won, when our big victory happened. They won
1: their case! (laughs) It was a huge victory in Indian country. But then it went into the appeals court, and just this last year, they lost.
3: And we eventually lost this year because of a separate case that had to do with the constitutionality of the piece of legislation that we used in our case, it was deemed unconstitutional. Um, so we had no foundation. We had no real legal footing to move forward with ours. It it died in, in the court system. The whole thing
1: has not been easy on Amanda. She had to relocate. People have been horrible to her. She's encountered real bullying, and it even affected her stability. That were
3: happening. And eventually I ended up losing my job because of all of this. Fell into some really hard times. Lost my job. I had to relocate to Phoenix, which is why I'm here. Just so much, you know, because of the way that people feel about this case. People's opinions about this are so polarized. Either they're for it or they're against it. That's just the type of feeling that it evokes in people from what I've seen.
1: She's still trying to regroup from the whole fiasco.
3: It's definitely been a long journey and I I kind of went through my mourning period and now it's like, okay, now you need to have your ceremony and figure out what to do next. You know, it's okay to just, it's okay to mourn for a while and now you need to figure out what you need to do moving forward.
0: Amanda has been incredibly resilient and has continued to stay in the good fight, pushing Native causes around representation all around the country.
3: Feeling the invisibility, the invisibility of Native people is so strong. You know, we're so invisible in this world. We have done everything we're supposed to. We've done everything right. We have, you know, we, we have um, done our speeches. We've done our peaceful protesting. And it's like, what's next?
1: I'm really glad mm-hmm. that you touched on invisibility because, you know, um, Dr. Freiberg, you've said that often. You say that you like to think about how to make the invisible visible. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, how has your research and your your recent research with Native Truth and Reconciliation, how have you um, been working towards that in, in your own work?
2: Yeah, I mean, that's really been the focus. Um, I think what we, the way we've shifted is that now we feel we have enough evidence to show that invisibility is a modern form of discrimination against mm-hmm. native people and that there's really been a practice of actively writing us out of contemporary life and i you know i really appreciate what amanda was saying because you know it's touching us at the everyday level and i think what people I mean, again, it always comes back to people think that the mascot issue is not a big issue, but actually it's a huge issue because it's very emblematic. It represents the way that we're being treated on every other issue. It just happens to be the most public issue. So when you think about the Megyn Kelly issues last week, It's very similar. Mm -hmm. So there was outrage over blackface, not outrage over redface. Then you look at the Elizabeth Warren, President Trump situation. I mean, here are two people who keep locating contemporary issues around whiteness and not around what's happening to Native people. And we have to take control of that narrative. And what I love about the Reclaiming Native Truth Project and now Illuminative Right, our Mm -hmm. next stage, is really about taking that back, taking control of the narrative, working to both understand. So in our own work, we've been looking much of the research. So there are kind of two really interesting pieces as we've continued to push that work forward. One is that many of the issues about bias against Native Americans is actually about how white people feel about themselves. Mm. So (laughs) once again, it's about whiteness, but it's about... Nationalism and the extent to which people identify as being American, and how important that identity is, the more. Um the more American people identify with, the more comfortable they are and actually prefer the invisibility of Native people. Um, And the less support they have for any social issue. I mean, it holds for the mascot issue, for uh, material inequity, so poverty issues, issues related to um, sovereignty. I mean, this is a really big issue. And so not only have we been able to show those relationships, but what we show is that what underlies it, like what mediates or explains these relationships, is how people connect it to racism. And so there's this denial of racism when it comes to Native people. We don't experience discrimination. African Americans experience discrimination. And I want to be really clear here, because to me, they do. This is not a African Americans really don't or, you know, the, the oppression olympics this is really about a recognition that discrimination is discrimination and people um, of all groups in america are experiencing it but there are many indicators by which we are experiencing discrimination at much higher rates than any other group you look at violence against women you look at um, police brutality i mean they're just you know issues around health and psychological Mm -hmm. well-being, suicide, um, kids dropping out of school. I mean, there are many ways in which that isn't about us. It's about how the world is responding to us. And so we have to get more vocal in, in setting that narrative, setting the story. And what's exciting about Illuminative is we're going to do that. And so I think the work that um, Crystal Echohawk and her team are doing, um, you know, the other research teams that have been involved in this work. It's just a really exciting time because I think we are coming together. Native mm-hmm. people are coming together in this country and now really recognize that these narratives have to change and that we need for our own well being we need to take charge of setting that narrative and we need to push back against these situations that keep coming up. Like we have to be really swift in how we respond to things like the Megyn Kelly issue and the Elizabeth Warren issue. And I mean, honestly the Donald Trump issue. (laughs) Um, And so, yeah, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of work to be done, but I'm, I feel optimistic. I mean, I think more than ever before, I do feel like we are coming together, and it's because of activism, like what Amanda's doing. It's because of the representational work that you guys both do through your blogs, through your websites, through creating new imagery. Um, I use it in my class all the time because it's really important that we start to help people see that the mascot is one representation. but. It's actually not so different than the Halloween costume. And it's not, and we have to do a better job of also educating people in our own communities. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So there's work to be done. (laughs)
0: Well, first of all thank you so much for taking this time we've been asking some of our guests like pretending it's 200 years from now it's twenty two eighteen. 18 what do our communities look like and what's kind of the world that you hope for your uh the future generations in 200 years around some of these representations issues
3: i think that it, it would be great to to be in a world where we're not so invisible our kids can grow up and not have to battle every corner outside of their community, have to battle misrepresentation of themselves. I mean, it's everywhere. It's it's. And my kids, they understand this stuff. I don't have to explain it to them more than a couple of times. They understand it. They're actually even more woke than I am. I mean, you give them some information and they just get it. Their minds are, are very are very pure. They haven't been exposed to the things that we have. And so they're able to make these decisions just based on what is good and what is bad. But I think it's everywhere. You know, they come home from school and they say, look at what we're learning today. And it's about Christopher Columbus. It's about Thanksgiving. It's about, you know, we went to a birthday uh, party recently and they were, you know, the, the men were over here talking about how they couldn't wait for the Washington team and um, the Cowboys to play for Thanksgiving in Dallas. And there's so many times where I just have to literally just keep my mouth shut because it's a kid's birthday party. (laughs) I'm not, I'm not going to, you know, upset these kids, but, um, and eventually I'm like, you know what I, you know, I'm like, you know, it's a terrible tradition. And, you know, we kind of went back and forth on the mascot thing with the parents, but, and then it just got super awkward and then they ended up leaving. And it's like, gosh, can I just go to a, can we just go to a party and not have to, you know, experience these things? But I think that once we have that sort of lifted, we can then, you know, there's so many different possibilities, even with just empowering our people. The reason why I went into social work practice is because, you know, when I went through my sort of decolonization sort of awakening where I'm like, wow, you know, if everyone can learn this, we could do so many things in our communities. You know, if we can all have this realization, this is the answer. Freeing, you know, people's mind, you know, people who haven't necessarily thought about this, their lives change and then they affect other people. They affect other issues, you know. That's the type of world that I want to see. What what comes out of that? the possibilities are endless. And I, I can't even predict that. But that's just, the, I think, the very basic level. That's what I would like
0: to see in
3: our community. Mm. That's
0: Word. beautiful.
3: Word. <laughs> Thank you, Amanda. Yes. <laughs> Thank you so much
0: for taking the time to join us. We're so appreciative. For the audience, are there places where folks can support your work? If they want to learn more or support your work, where should they go?
3: Yes, visit us. Um, Our website is www.nomorenativemascots.org. Arizona to Rally Against Native Mascots is my group here in Phoenix. And that you can follow us on Facebook. You can follow me, Amanda Blackhorse, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Yeah, that's it. And I just want to say thank you to you guys. You guys are so inspirational. You are definitely people I look up to for sure
0: oh, I the feeling is mutual. The that you do. Oh, the feelings mutual. That's why we asked you, I um, look up to you so much. Thank you. And we all kind of do our
3: own, you know, sort of work and it all complements each other. And I think that's, that's awesome. And that's amazing. So I'm kind of a, being a fan girl right now, just like fanning out a little, trying to contain myself. But thank you guys so much and you know what I am really appreciating right now in this time with our people is the the female empowerment and the dismantling of toxic masculinity and the dismantling of misogynistic behaviors in our communities so I look to you guys and I see that this is this is what that's what we're doing here
1: and it's it's great Mm, is that right
0: no no <laughs> oh i, I
1: can't yeah I, can't. <laughs> I look forward to meeting you in person amanda i hope that can happen soon yeah yeah, Wado, yeah
0: thank you
3: sure. Bye, if you're amanda. in
1: phoenix let me know we should meet up yeah i'm there all the time so mm-hmm. i'll look you up girl i'm on it <laughs> okay <laughs> all right Awesome. <laughs> Can we switch gears to education? Sure. Okay. I really like your concepts about identity-safe spaces, Mm -hmm. and I'm wondering if you could sort of break that concept down and talk Mm -hmm. about uh, those small indicators that you're talking about changing Mm -hmm. and shifting, because I think the audience could really benefit from implementing some of that into their own classrooms, into their own spaces, and, Mm -hmm. and so... I'll give you the floor for that one. (laughs) Oh, okay.
2: Yeah. Um, Well, identity safety, the way that we utilize it in, in all of the work that we do is identity safety is important for everyone. So even if we think about this representational battle that's going on, we can't move people if they don't feel safe. And so more and more, we're recognizing that we need to be better at taking people where they are and then helping people to understand you can only know what you know. And then we help you move from there. And so there are certain factors we know that influence identity safety. One is stereotypes, right? But there are stereotypes about all groups. So it's not just stereotypes about natives, but white people also have stereotypes. And when it comes to race and cultural issues, a lot of the stereotypes are that they're not good at these issues. And that also puts them in a position of threat. And so as we think about building allies, part of what we want to do is build identity safety, which means we need to have a good theory of making mistakes. Mm -hmm. We need to allow people to grow and to make mistakes and to recognize, I mean, I don't know everything about every other group. And I have a PhD in this area. Mm-hmm. And what we really want is people to be able to have real conversation, have have talk. And I, you know, I, when I think all the time about, you know, you hear people talk about white privilege um, and the problem, white vulnerability, the problem with that is that also makes white people feel threatened. Yeah. And part of the work that we need to do is to help people to feel like they can be our ally. So other issues, um, another indicator of identity safety is cultural matching. It turns out the way that a context or an environment such as a school classroom or a school, the way, the valid cultural values and norms that come through, they match for some kids and not for others. And so when it matches, when you know the, the ways of being that are being expressed in that environment match how you've been brought up, that feels like a really safe environment. Mm-hmm. But when it doesn't, and you're getting all these subtle messages about you don't, you know, you don't speak up enough, or you know, why do you not care so much about choice, or whatever the issue is, then those children are left to basically figure out, why don't I fit in here? And mm-hmm. there are these subtle cues in the environment that essentially say, hmm, not you. And children code these. We're extremely social beings. And so there are these wonderful stories. If you look at uh, Patricia Greenfield's work, Barbara Rogoff's work, there are these wonderful examples of the ways that teachers undermine young children of color simply by not allowing them to finish their thought because it's not the thought they wanted. Uh, One of my favorite examples from Patricia Greenfield's work is the teacher holds out an egg, and the egg is going to hatch. And she asks the child to explain the properties of the egg. And a young five-year-old Latina girl says, well, in the kitchen with my grandma. And she says, no, 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 the egg, the egg. And again, the little girl says, well, in the kitchen with my grandma. And identity safety it is in this case that teacher needed to step back and say okay I'm gonna let this child finish and see where she's going and so we call it an interpretive power mm-hmm. we need to help expand the interpretive power of people in positions of privilege and so for that little girl each time the teacher said no just the egg no that five-year-old is coding oh I don't belong here. And my grandma doesn't belong here. And the story doesn't belong here. And it becomes this little indicator that pushes that child one step out the door. And it's all these subtle cues. We also get them through positive representation. So, And this is something that for Native children is particularly a big issue because of the way in which we've been omitted from contemporary mm-hmm. life. So it's really hard for Native children to look out on social media, on television, in the film industry, and see our people represented as doctors and lawyers, teachers, you can really, across the spectrum, nurses. And the problem with that is that we all go about a process of building identities and so when you're omitted from that space it's a little bit harder for you to figure out how to be in that space but more importantly it denies for children the contribution that our people have made mm. and Often, people think, "Oh, you know, native people, we have to give them things and But tribes all over this country are giving millions and millions of dollars to states and local um, schools and working you know building infrastructure." With no appreciation whatsoever. And that's important because when we deny that contribution, we also deny it for our young children. And they don't get to see that I can stand up, I can take a stand, I can work hard. Our community, we give back and we do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so identity safety is about, how do we control those three sets of, in, of factors? This negative stereotypes, positive representation that allow them to see themselves in the future, see what's possible for them, and then these cultural matching features. And so we've worked with teachers through a variety of interventions to really help teachers build a model um, that works for all kids um, and that allows for greater variation in the classroom. So it's good for native kids it's good for low-income kids. And so it's something I feel very passionate about. It's kind of, it may seem like a totally different part of my research, but actually both the native bias work and the work we do in schools is about representation. Yeah. And at the end of the day, we're just trying to understand how can we change environments? How can we cue kids who generally don't feel like they belong, that you do belong here, and you can be successful in this space?
1: hmm
0: yeah, I, I could just listen to you talk. <laughs> it's, listening to you talk, I just keep thinking about the power of research in yeah. moving the needle on these conversations. Yeah. And Matika told the story of her first kind of encountering your work. And for me, I was at Stanford in 2004 as an undergrad. And I think that was when you were a grad student. I actually just left. You had just left. Okay. So I was taking Psych 1, um, Mm -hmm. the intro psych class at Stanford, and we had to, for our final design, a study. And we had watched In Whose Honor, which is a documentary that follows Charlene Teeters in her fight against the University of Illinois mascot. And that, watching the the, uh, documentary combined with my experiences at Stanford, which used to have the Indian mascot and would pop up all the time when I was a student there, um, I decided that my final, I was gonna write this study that was groundbreaking about how uh, Native mascots influenced how Native college students thought about themselves. And I presented it to my TA and he graded it and he gave me like a decent grade. And he's like, have you heard of Stephanie Freiberg? <laughs> and I was like, no, who's that? And he was like, she just left, or so it must've been she just left here. Um, and this is the work that she is doing. Like you should reach out to her, you should talk with her, cause this is what she does. And I was a freshman and I was too afraid, like the idea of reaching out to this Native person who had just graduated was too much for me. But that was when I was first made aware that there was a Native woman doing this work. And then when the study came out, everything clicked into place where I could be like, no, there's actual data. Like, let's point to this. I can send this file to people like we can talk about it. And now as the things have moved forward from that first initial mascot study to thinking about these ideas of bias and about the ways that the invisibility piece comes into it and talking to focus groups about uh, the ways they think about this and all the pieces coming together to be able to have that tangible data and those stories that come with it. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> We've all been there, <laughs> but to be able to have that tangible data and the stories that come with it is so powerful and points to the need for more native researchers yeah. in these areas That's so right. that we can tell the research stories through our voices. Yeah. yeah, so um I'd love to hear just broadly like your thoughts about the role of research in these processes of changing the narrative: yeah. Well,
2: I mean, obviously, I'm a researcher, and so I see some utility in it. (laughs) Um, But, I mean, it's also been very clear to me, both in the work I've done with schools and the work around the mascot issue and other issues, right? I mean, we're, we're doing work my team is looking at a variety of different yeah. issues. Um, how do we talk about and build alliance with non-natives around the, the lives that contemporary Native people experience? And, and really, like, how can we do that in useful and important ways that allow us to, to bridge that gap, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, really building those intergroup relations. Well, for me, science has been, okay. Do you know Beyoncé's song Listen? Yeah. Okay. One of my favorite songs, it's right? It's a great song. Well, I mean there's there's a piece in there's a a line in there about being at a crossroads mm-hmm. and you need to listen, right? My relationship with science is somewhat like that song. I feel a bit like, you know, science has and research has problems, right? We have gatekeepers Mm -hmm. and, you know, it's hard for people to get into the field and it's hard to do research on a group that's small and it's hard to get data. And then at the same time, you have this clock that you're working against. And (laughs) I mean, you're all too aware of, Um, but on the flip side of it, data has power. And so what I've really come to recognize is that Ten years ago, I couldn't imagine being allowed to have the voice in spaces that I do today. Mm. And we do need more Native scholars to step up, young people to step up and become researchers because data gives us power. It's one thing to say, oh, you know, we all, the three of us, we stand together and this is wrong. It's another thing to be able to say, when we have this, it undermines the well-being of Native Mm -hmm. children, That's a very different and very powerful Mm -hmm. story. And so as we think about the work that we do, we have to think about what are the social issues we're trying to address? How do we how do we address those? And then I have in the last 10 years really moved into intervention research and where we're actually taking what we know from research and trying to change these environments and contexts. And so research is important. It's, I mean, I I feel like, you know, in my team, I'm constantly giving my grad students a little pep talk because it's hard and it seems scary. And a lot of research is very independence-based. And, you know, that's hard because you know, Native people, a lot of people of color, we're just not really independent. Mm-hmm. You know, we're doing it for our community. We're doing it for others. But then I have to sit in a cubicle by myself and do it. Like, that feels... And so we're trying to also build new models of research. Um, so in my lab, we run our lab through teams, so i have two Mm -hmm. teams one team for each of the big research projects and then we run all of our sub projects through that so that my younger grad students they have a team of people to work with they have other people to connect with um to ask for help when they're struggling um, and, and I think it's really important that we start to also take back that space. It doesn't have to be the way it's been created. Right. That's just sort of how, you know, the sort of middle class, educated, white influence. But as, you know, a Native woman, I can bring a sense of tribal collectivism to, the, to academia and create those spaces mm-hmm. for some students. Yeah. It's not easy, but we definitely need more Native young people to step up and become researchers. And anytime I see a great applicant, I'm, I
1: want them. So
2: come, come work with, <laughs> come come work with, with our team yeah. <laughs> because we want
1: you. Mm. We do. Well, that's actually a perfect segue when you brought up independence, because I was into, I was reading about how you, you found that um, 25% of students do better in education when They are thinking about it in terms of community. And tribe, yeah. And tribe. And so can you talk, tell people more about that study? Yeah,
2: yeah. So, I mean, what we did is we um, exposed Native middle schoolers to either a native or a white role model that was always the same gender as them. And then we varied the message as being very independent. Getting an education can benefit you in the future or more interdependent. Getting an education can benefit your family in or your community, mm-hmm. your tribe in the future. And it increases motivation for native kids mm. when you use, first of all, the native role model and Getting an education will benefit your community, your tribe in the future. is much more motivating to our children, and of course, not every single one. Like there's variation among our kids, and of course, data reflects that too. Right, we have a standard variance, um, standard error that we report in the data, but. Nonetheless, it, it gives teachers a tool that they can use, right? Utility becomes a framework. Mm. There's no reason that a teacher can't say, we're going to learn X and it's useful for you and your family and your community in this way. Mm-hmm. And really engage children in that learning process. It takes That took like, what, five seconds to yeah. say? Um, we all have time for it, but we all come to learning spaces with different motivational needs. And what we have shown in our work is that Native kids and actually uh, one of my collaborators and former grad students, um, Rebecca Koverubius, has done a number of studies that we've published together with. Latinx Mm -hmm. kids um, and also with Native kids around belonging and different ways that we can increase belonging by tapping into utility framing for family, doing it for community and getting away from it's all about you Mm -hmm. because for us it's not all about us, it Mm -hmm. never
1: is all about us Mm -hmm. because all my relations all my relations, (laughs) it always comes back because you said that universities are about making individuals independent that's right. And that I would say that that's much of the problem in Western belief systems. Yeah. And that maybe that's why we, you know, and also your level, you also made the association that our independence is linked to our ability to be successful. Mm, yeah. And so how do we encourage our our communities to manage and maintain a sense of interdependence yeah. or a, a sense of yeah. relationality, relationships, or yeah. have a relationship-based identity? it when if we're having to choose independence to be successful in a Western model or interdependence to be successful in a tribal model, how do we how do we integrate those two concepts?
2: Well what's nice is I don't even think we have to integrate them. We can have context dependent identities. And I think more and more, you know, it's not that I went to college and became independent and forgot who I was Mm -hmm. as a tribal person. Right? I grew up on the reservation. I learned, you know, through participation in my family and our community, how to exist in the world. What I did is built another self. And what's true for me is, over the years, I've never ever felt like my academic self is my true self. It always feels like a self I'm having to put on. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I go back to the community, that's when I get to be my real self. I'm hanging out with my cousins. You know, we're joking around. You know, I'm spending time with my great uncle, writing a book, and listening to him. And in that moment. That's when I feel connected and grounded yeah. in a way that I know a lot of other people who don't know what it's like to belong to a tribe and a community can't understand. but. I think it's also really important for us to recognize, even as we work to push educators to realize that there are these other ways of being, we also want to be careful not to say that independence is a problem, right? Independence is one way of being, and it works for a lot of people, and it's connected with a lot of positive outcomes but so too is interdependence. And so we have to get, because of the diversity in American society, we have to get educators to branch out and see beyond just their own. So again, we get back to this idea of interpretive power, that what we want from our allies, what we want from our educators, lawyers who work with our communities, people, social workers who come in, is we want them to have an expanded cultural toolkit. We want them to not default to their way is the only way. There's many ways to be in the world, and we can all learn, right? We need Native kids to be able to see, oh, that actually wasn't about me. That was about, and they're just being their hyper-independent self. That's just not my way. Then it's not a subtle cue that's blowing us out. It's something that we can say, oh, yeah, that's just them, and I'm going to you know keep moving forward and so there's a lot of really cool and exciting work we can do with this we've been working with seven school districts and um, you know really doing very very um, tedious intervention work really with the goal of making this, but collecting data on kids before the intervention, after Mm -hmm. the intervention, videotaping before and after collecting data with teachers. And at the end of the day, we are going to learn how to give this away with fidelity so that it can be done well. And we are going to create educational spaces that are identity safe for all kids, Mm -hmm. middle-class white kids, African-American kids, low-income native kids, Everyone is included in this. And mm-hmm. it's a model that I think educators have been looking for, but it really just gives them a toolkit to work with so that they can, you know, engage their kids and feel like they have some, some tools to mm-hmm. work with. Mm-hmm. So I offer you, Matika, a choice, and your response is, I don't care. Mm. Right? Because you don't, you don't live in a choice world that's not a problem. I, as a teacher, I'm going to go back and say, okay, next time I'm going to try a different strategy with Matika. Mm-hmm. And so I might come back next time and say, Matika, I thought about you last night. And I was thinking you might like and I make the choice for you. At the end of the day, you don't have to accept my choice. I actually won the day. The minute I told you I thought about you last Mm. night. And it's really helping teachers to understand that for some kids, it is about recognizing that you're in a hierarchical relationship and you have that comes with responsibilities. And when you give them a choice, you're essentially saying, I don't know you. So what do you want? Mm. And so it's really teaching teachers to see kids through a different relationship framework. Mm -hmm. Um, But the end goal is exciting, Mm -hmm. right? Because I think we can take these studies we've done around belonging, role models, different kinds of utility framing, and we can turn it into really meaningful work for on behalf of Native kids. I love
1: it. There's two things that I was really taken by when you were talking about this. One, you said that pushing back against mascots is, in essence, protecting ourselves. You know, to kind of summarize this idea, when you say that, what what are you t- what are you really talking about there?
2: Well, I mean, one, we have evidence that when Native people disagree with the use of Indians as mascots it protects them it buffers Mm -hmm. them from the negative effects of the stereotype and so we do need our people to understand that literature but of course the part of the problem is is that pushing back also comes up against invisibility so for some of for some native people they'd rather be visible through a mascot than completely Mm -hmm, invisible mm -hmm. which is just a terrible choice right Um, but at the same time teaching our young people especially that pushing back actually protects you, it benefits you, Um, and then helping educators to also understand that we need to keep these things out of educational spaces because we have a responsibility to Native kids to protect them and to give them the best opportunity to be successful. And so we can educate them about the way representations work. We can also... Simply like be okay when they are against it right i mean it 's interesting how how much pushback our our children get when they try to stand up yeah. against the Indian mascot, and we have to do more and it shouldn 't come down to native kids having to go stand be, be in front of school boards and do things like that. School boards need to take responsibility for protecting native kids. this is a stereotype it's discrimination i mean there are laws in this country that say this is not allowed in educational spaces this should not be a community debate right um and when they do that often the families that pay the price are native families Mm -hmm. so we have to do better word
0: word, (laughs) word word Next, we're going to be moving to Skoden, oh, which is our yeah. lightning round on Skodin. Indian time. Um, basically, all it means is we have some questions in this basket, and we're going to pull them out and answer them. Um, you're allowed to pass or also answer the person's question before you if you feel so inclined. The rules are loose. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> oh, I, I get to pick the, yeah. Yeah. You get okay. To pick the question? Okay. We're, we're answering two, so don't worry. <laughs>
2: okay. What is your favorite book of all time?
0: Ooh,
1: good one.
2: Oh, do I answer yeah. this? Yeah. Oh, I thought
1: I got to ask you <laughs> okay, the question. Well, we can answer I'll it answer. too. But- I think my favorite book of all time, uh, I think like that influenced me the most, was First Kerouac that because on the road like got me when i was like 13 it like gave me this life mm-hmm. was, like i have to go travel <laughs> and then do heroin and then um <laughs> and, and then the next book that changed me was the alchemist when i it made me believe that the mm. world wants me to succeed i was like 16 mm. and so those aren't my favorite like literature but they changed my life the most right. yeah right
0: um, I had a really hard time we had this question before in the basket and I like I can't answer it I have so many books that have been like so foundational from uh, like I think about Harry Potter as being something mm. that was really changed my mindset on being able to imagine like a different world Um, There's this book from the 1930s called I Capture the Castle, which Mm -hmm. is like so problematic on some levels, but is also just beautiful. And I love it. And my sister, Mm. my sister and I have read it like a 100 times between us. I think we even stole the library book version of it. Um, And then all of the like native literature. So I could just go on and on. I love to read. I read a lot.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I definitely, I also love to read and I love, I mean, it's been fun having young kids and getting Mm -hmm. to read books with them. Um, But two books, I think for me that were really like, they came around at the right time in my life. Um, So one was Women on the Edge of Time. Mm. And it's really about, it's, it's an imagined world that has that kind of Walden, you know, feel to it, but it was really about how would the world be different for women Mm. if you could change some of these social structures. And for me, it really was the first time I really started to rethink the interface between inequality and identity. Mm. And so it was a really powerful, and it's the main characters are like, you know, this Chicana woman and this African-American woman. And, and so, you know, it, it, it just, I just remember being in college and being like, (laughs) Right. And so really powerful. Um, and then there were really sort of two authors. So Yellow Raft on Blue Water. I mean, I I know there were problems with Michael Dorse, but that book, the way that it talked across three generations Mm -hmm. and the experience for me really helped me to see the ways in which, um, the transmission of trauma, um, the way that history gets transmitted across um, generations, but then also the way that we come to identify through generations and our connection to both the past and the future. And and so, I mean, the other is some poetry by um, Harjo um, mm-hmm. that I just absolutely, I, I've heard her so many times. Like, mm. um, there's one about the what is it, the window on the, south, like, so they're standing at a window in Chicago on the south side. I mean, like, you know, so as someone who's not like a poet at all, mm-hmm. but I, her voice, I could just always hear, like, I could hear the struggle. I, I had been there. I could feel it. I, I could see it in my community. And it was the first time where I could connect literature to what my experience was like on the reservation and growing up there. I could seriously go on about like a hundred other books. So Mm. just stop there. I did think of
0: one. I thought of one that is more specific and that is Wilma Mankiller's autobiography. Mm, And it was as you were talking, that was the book for me that was the first time I kind of saw myself reflected in a story because I just knew of Wilma Mankiller as this amazing leader in our tribe, the first, like, female principal chief. But I didn't know that she had grown up away and came back to the community and that she had this story of reconnection. And that um, in the book, she talks about, like, all those experiences of, like, going to the stomp dances and going to these spaces. And that completely resonates with my own experiences, too. And so to be able to think, like, this person that I admired so deeply actually shared a lot more with me than I thought was super powerful and I return to that book pretty often
2: a a total side story about Wilma Mankiller Um, I met her at every stage of my career Wow! and by the time I was faculty at Arizona and we it was like the third time we got to sit down and Mm. share a meal together I was like you make me feel like I'm in the right place all the time because it's like, you know, I was at Kenyan. I was the only native there, we got to have dinner together, and I just remember asking her, like, how do I know that I'm not losing who I am mm-hmm. as a native person here? And she was like, are you kidding? Like you are so much more than any one experience. You are a collection of values and and mm. stories and histories, and you carry all that in you. And I was like, okay, I got it. I'm good. <laughs> and then And then I saw her when I was at Stanford mm. and, again, got to have a conversation with her. And so I just felt like she wasn't someone – I mean, she's not from my community, but she was this very powerful, meaningful woman in my life, elder, who – just every time I talked to her, it was like, okay, she's saying to me what I need to hear right now. Okay, I'm good. We can we can mm, keep moving, moving yeah. on. Lo- it was so amazing. Yeah, I
0: found out she and my auntie wrote letters to each other. Like later in her life, when she was um, sick, my auntie wrote her a letter that was like, "I admire you. Thank you for your work. I'm sorry. Like you're going through these things." And she wrote back, and wow. they had a correspondence. And wow. that auntie is not super involved in native stuff at all and she just felt like she was moved to write her and as someone who gets a lot of correspondence from people I don't know like I don't think I would take that time so she just totally I wish I would have had the opportunity to sit down and meet her she seems amazing yeah as a side note see that's why this is not really a lightning round (laughs) you could smudge
1: anyone living or dead who would it be and why Mm-hmm. I'm gonna go with Trump today. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I don't Someone know. needs to smudge him off. Like I don't think it would tripping. help. At this point. Mm-hmm. He's so tripping. I really don't
0: think it would help at this point. Mm-hmm. But maybe I have faith.
1: Mm.
2: <laughs> I don't know. I'm. I feel like I can't answer that question because, to be honest, I feel pretty down on a lot of different domains, and I can't quite figure out like. Who do I need to stand up to be powerful in this space? Mm -hmm. And when I think about, like, to me, smudging has sort of both. It's sort of getting rid of the bad, but it's also like giving one strength. Mm -hmm. And so then there are like people I sort of, I want Michelle Obama to have more strength. And I want, you know, and I start to think of like people who have stood up who we need allies And then I think of people in our community who I want to stand up. Some of the elders I wish would stand up more and, you know, speak up against things that are going on. Um, So I can't actually, I'm struggling to like put it in any one place. Um, But really like the world as it is right now is not the world that I feel comfortable in. And so I sometimes feel like it feels like the world is upside down and we all know it's upside down. Um, And we agree not to talk about the fact that it's upside down, but we just keep walking through the world and, you know, things just keep dropping to the sky. And at the end of the day, you're like, why? Why can't we write this? And so there's sort of a very deep, unsettled feeling that I have about the way the world is right now. Um, But I keep hoping that ship is going to write itself. Mm -hmm. Or maybe we need to do a whole lot of work to write it.
1: that's a wrap for the Native Mascots conversation. We want to take a moment to thank Dr. Freiberg and Amanda Blackhorse for visiting with us. These strong, indigenous, resilient women, man, they've been an incredible source of light and inspiration for both Adrian and I, and now hopefully for you too. Thank you, listener. Thank you so much for joining us. We hope that you enjoyed this conversation. We love you, and we're glad you're here with us. Be sure to subscribe and come back next week for a discussion with Dr. Kim TallBear. Can a DNA test make me Native American? <laughs> it's a spicy one. You're going to like it. <laughs> uh, you know, it takes a lot of work to put something like this together. And I just want to thank our team that make it possible. Teo, Tiguizi, thank you, Brooke and Juanita. Tiguitzi Tenel and our sponsors. We raise our hands to you. We're so grateful for you. Peace and love, friends. See you next week.